and welcome to the Sport in History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute for Historical Research. This week we're continuing a series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the BSSH's Sport and Leisure History seminar series at the IHR. And this week I'm with Amanda Callan Spen. Hi Amanda. Hi, hi Jeff. Um, Amanda is a biographer and historian who works mainly in the areas of theatre and martial arts in the early 20th century. She's particularly interested in archival research and her recently completed PhD thesis was a biographical study of Sarah Mayer, the first Western female judo black belt in Japan. Yeah. Amanda, it's not that long ago that you had your fiver, is it? Um, so how did, how did that go? Quite a uh, stressful experience yeah. for a lot of people. In truth, a, a terrifying experience that I never <laughs> want to repeat. But uh, no, it was fine. It, it, it went well and... Um, squeezed through. I've got, got some amendments to do, but um, yeah. yeah, I think all was, all was good. Your supervisor was a previous podcast guest, uh, Jean Williams. Uh, yeah. Did you have a little celebration afterwards? We did. We had tea and cake yeah. at Jean's house afterwards. Yeah. Classic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as you do. I have tea and cake after everything. So. <laughs> and how would you, um, how, how, how was your relationship as uh, kind of a PhD candidate and supervisor? How, how did that go? Was Jean... Um, helpful she uh, Jean's been incredibly helpful yeah she's she's been really supportive uh, and encouraging um, in helping me to put together the thesis and to understand what it is that was needed from a PhD um, rather than just this is a story about Sarah if you see what I mean yeah yeah, um, because when you when you gave your paper at the Sport and Leisure History Seminar, um, you talked to us about Sarah Mayer, and she's a woman with an extraordinary life. So yeah. maybe you could tell us some more about her, and you know, let the people listening who aren't aware of what she did uh, uh, give us a picture of why she was such a, an extraordinary woman. So she was um, a British actress and playwright, and sh- uh, she ran her own touring theatre company. But this was in the 1920s. Um, so, as far as an entrepreneurial character, uh, quite extraordinary. I've only found another two women who were managing touring theatre companies in the 20s. Um, and then in the 1930s, she decided to leave behind her husband, her extremely wealthy husband, who, who she'd married up in the world, um, uh, leave him behind, travel to Japan for initially for six months and take the four month journey to Japan. Four months, yeah. so she went by By boat, boat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Left from Liverpool and um, basically went kind of halfway around the world, um, landed in Kobe, having um, gone through China, which was having extreme difficulties um, with uh, nationalists were fighting. Um, she, she was in extreme danger at, at times, it's a bizarre way to go. Um, so landed in Japan and, and went straight to the local judo club. And there were no other women there. It was just basically, it was in a Kobe and the Kobe police force uh, that she trained with and um, very racially bathed with afterwards. Yeah. Um, and she just became completely obsessed with, with judo, which she'd been learning a bit in London. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So how did she become introduced to judo? I know that at the turn of the century, it became very popular, didn't it, in this country? Yeah, it but did. Amongst men. 
Yes. So how did but, Sarah well, break into that world? Yeah, um, with jiu-jitsu, which um, is, judo is, is formed from jiu-jitsu techniques. So the jiu-jitsu techniques were basically the way that samurais killed each other. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or other people, I guess. Yeah. Um, and uh, Jigoro Kano, who, who started judo, um, took those techniques, some of those techniques, of which there were many, um, and turned it into a more of an educational, <coughs> physical culture. With um, education was a, was a big thing for him. He he, he um, taught at the, I think it was the higher normal school. So that mm. was the teacher training, really. Okay. How did judo come to Britain, though? So he was teaching in Japan. How does it come to Europe? Let's say Europe, because having worked in France, I know that it it kind of spreads through Western European culture, doesn't it? Yeah. So there was a guy called Edward Barton Wright who had, had been in Tokyo and learnt judo under Kano. And he came back to England and he started his own physical culture called Bartitsu, right. which I think is a hilarious name. And Sounds like a power tool. Yeah, yeah. And um, so he's basically taken his name and, and added Itsu. Yeah. And um, he brought over some Japanese guys um, who, were, who did judo or jiu-jitsu at the time and um, put them on the stage uh, on, in the music halls. Yeah. And they, so they then began to popularize jiu-jitsu in England, they became superstars. Right. Okay. Um, and it was it was it was also partly tied up um, a few years later with the Russo-Japanese War, hmm. and because Japan won that, British newspapers thought jujitsu was the whole reason that they won the, the entire Russo-Japanese yeah, War. Yeah, this is something that's quite interesting during that period because there's a kind of a crisis about British masculinity, isn't there? Absolutely. People are worried that the British traditional ways of doing things are not successful enough and so they're looking around the world aren't they? For, yeah, for, yeah, exactly for ways that. Of toughening up British men. Yes, yes, yeah. I think there have been a few disasters in, in wars that yeah. uh, they realised that the British men were just, you know, needed to be stronger and fitter, mm. uh, or ideally. Um, yeah. and, and so, yeah, exactly that. So they thought that um, jiu-jitsu would, would be because it had been so successful for the Japanese, perhaps it would work for us. Mm. So Edward uh, Barton Wright was part of that, um, but he was a little bit earlier. And um, but then women became involved really early. Right. Okay. So you've got women um, like um, Emily Watts, uh, who wrote the first book we think by a woman about jujitsu, and. Um, Phoebe Roberts, uh, I've already, I've written about these guys too. So. Okay. <laughs> Where did um, you write about them, if I can just break in there? Um, so there's uh, an article in the International Journal of the History of Sport. Oh, okay. Yeah, so people can find uh, it. Yeah, so they can, yeah. they can find that. Um, and that's about Phoebe Roberts, Edith Garrod and Sarah. Yeah. And um, Edith Garrod's very interesting because um, she was... I guess five or so years later than that. Mm. So she'd been learning with the same guys that these other women had been learning with. And um, she was then utilized by the suffrage movement, well, the WSPU, uh, 
to form a bodyguard right. of yeah. women to protect mainly the Pankhurst, but you know um, any of the women who were who were on marches giving speeches because they were being attacked by not only the police but the general public were counter protesters yeah, people like exactly. this exactly yeah. so so she formed this bodyguard of women doing judo ostensibly um, who would go around with them keep a low profile and then dive in when needed so um, Edith Garrett's a very interesting character too so she's she's the person who kind of takes it from the early 1900s through to the post first world war yeah yes yeah. so she goes kind of into the first world war yeah um, and then we all know what happens with the suffrage movement yeah. at that point um, but then yeah successful afterwards <laughs> <laughs> well, small steps yeah I suppose, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. So the Budokai, um, which was a Japanese society in London, just behind Buckingham Palace, uh, was formed in 1918, right on the back of the war, um, by a Japanese judoka uh, called Gunji Koizumi. And um, so that's where the story of judo in England yeah. then carries on. And so this is where Sarah picks it up. Yeah, it? so in the yeah. 1920s, the Budokai are, are very keen to encourage women uh, in and so a, a lot of their newspaper reports are aimed at women and so in, in 1920 they get a big influx of women and then Sarah began in 1926 originally. Yeah. And do you see, just to talk about judo more generally, do you see judo as being exceptional in, in kind of seeking women to, to take part in, in their sport? How does it compare to other sports during, between the wars? Yeah, um, between the wars is, uh, is a very interesting time, isn't it? It's, um, I know with um, hockey, we've got women forming associations. Mm. Yeah, um, we had Raf talking about women's cricket recently as well. Right, yeah. <laughs> And and obviously, you know we've got the problems with football, women <laughs> football yeah, in that inter interval period. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I think you're probably right. I think it, it's a sort of fairly unusual yeah. um, thing to do. Um, and then when she goes to Japan, um, how does she get by? I mean, does she know Japanese before she arrives there? Or? No, she, t she talks about the fact she's um, learning Japanese, which seems to be mainly to avoid, em avoid embarrassment um, rather than to assimilate. Um, she, she says how um, oh, it, was, it, it was so embarrassing because I didn't know what people were saying to me. So, so she starts having daily lessons and um, throws herself into the culture as well. But, but um, sort of... I feel from an actress's point of view, she was, yeah. she felt that she was kind of playing this role of an yeah. English woman assimilating into. Because we kind of skipped over her actress theatre manager yeah, <laughs> uh, background yeah. there, yeah. didn't we? Although you mentioned it in the in, in the yeah. introduction. Yeah. I mean, how how significant a figure was she in the theatre between the so, wars? So so she was um, the f her family. She was from a theatrical dynasty, and her father was very well known, although he's slipped into oblivion latterly but um, at the time he, he was um, the New York Times for instance ran a piece on a dream he had <laughs> uh, randomly um, it was um, 
an, another actor had died and he, he, he said that he dreamt about this guy yeah. dying basically um, before it happened or when it happened. Oh, right. okay. So, yeah. so that the New York Times obviously see him as a big enough figure yeah. that that's, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> transatlantic reputation at least yeah yeah, yeah absolutely and and he traveled extensively and i think that's maybe where sarah felt it was you know okay to be doing that yeah yeah, yeah. but as as an actress herself she she'd been on the west end stage um in the chorus and um she'd had she'd had the odd part uh, named part but never yeah. the main part in the West End uh, provincially she had she, she, she'd worked quite a lot but yeah. in the West End she was more of a, a bit part woman yeah. <laughs> okay. and then, but then when she becomes a, a pr practitioner of judo she's very much a star isn't she when she goes to yeah, Japan yeah well she, she just becomes this really unusual figure in yeah. Japan and because she's only training with men um, so when she arrived in Kobe, there, there was no choice. It was there were only men, and mainly the police force to yeah. to, to train with. Um, and I think it says quite a lot about the sensei at the Kobe Butokukai, uh, which is the society, um, that he just he seems to have just allowed her to join in the sessions. And um, although she does talk about the fact that he quite enjoys going to her rooms afterwards and um, they chat all night and he says that she's the first woman that he's spent time with that's not his wife okay and yeah. you know so there's maybe another motive there yeah. who knows um but publicly they very much act as um teacher and pupil so were there a lot of british people in in japan at that time how was she unusual within the british community that was there already yeah so she there wasn't a huge amount of tourism coming into Japan and they were keen to promote that. They, they wanted more okay. money, more foreign yeah. currency coming in. Yeah. Um, they, they were just coming out of the Showa de depression. Um, so they, they desperately needed more money coming in. Um, so they were, they were very much promoting tourism. But I think the year that she, was, that she arrived, 1934, I think there were something like 3,000 tourists. Yeah in Japan so very few really. so very few and the fact that she threw herself into judo was deemed very weird yeah. <laughs> there were female judoka in Tokyo um, but there were 16 who were registered in Tokyo at the Kodokan which is um, Kano's society that he founded yeah. um, as opposed to there was something like a million male judoka yeah, so in Japan. You so know. she's a minority within a so very small minority. Exactly. And then when she went to Tokyo, she was permitted by Kano to train in the male dojo, which no other woman had been allowed in the male dojo. So, you know, the questions arise what's that about why was she allowed to and I think it's probably because she was so different yeah she wasn't treated like a Japanese woman um, or a woman I think she was treated like this weird other thing yeah so um, it's kind of a yeah very modern way of looking at gender roles isn't it is she, she, she breaks down the, the gender stereotype of what a woman yeah, should be. Absolutely. And by breaking that down, is allowed to perform 
almost as a man, would you? Yeah, like that? yeah, absolutely, know. absolutely. Well, she says that they they treated her like a small boy. So almost asexual, then. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think so. I mean, there were there were strange overtones. She began to live with um, a guy called Ichiro Hata, Ichiro Hata, um, but she was living with his family, um, and eventually he gave up his bedroom for her yeah. she lived there for six months and <laughs> and his mother would um pack them a suitcase together to send them off as, a, as tourists together right but he would tell the press that they were going off as tourists together so i think there there was this sort of strange as you say asexual kind yeah. of quite innocent in a way yeah very much so all I think it was it's I mean other people might argue yeah that. I guess it, it's difficult to get underneath the way that things are presented in public like that isn't there but what sort of documents were you using to, to look at her progress through Japan did she leave a diary or anything um, like this? so there are seven letters um, which Sarah wrote while she was in Japan well the first one is from India when she's on her way um, but the other six are all from Japan and uh, she writes, she's writing back to Koizumi at the Budokai in London. Ah, oh, okay. So yeah. she's writing to her former judo sensei. And um, she tells him all about her adventures. And she doesn't kind of hold back. She, she you know, it's, it is, uh, which is, again, an, another question of is she, why is she writing these things to him? She talks about the Japanese culture and the bathing culture as if he wouldn't know about yeah. it, you know. So um, she says, oh, it's very odd how everybody's naked together. And, you know, it just it just seems like an odd way to write to your former sensei. Did she have any eye on sort of publication of these letters? Or do you think that was, that was a bit I don't think or, so. I yeah. think because um, she was writing ostensibly to the Budokai, so although she was writing to Mr. Koizumi and um, saying also hello to the family and things, I think she maybe thought that they would be read out at the Budokai. And, and I mean, that was a, that was a thing uh, in the okay. past that yeah, letters yeah. were yeah. news, weren't they? So they were kind of read out yeah. to, to people when, when a new letter came in yeah, to yeah. interested parties. Yeah. So maybe she was expecting them to be read out. And. Um, how long does she stay in Japan? Does she, I mean, presumably she leaves before war breaks out. Between yeah, the yeah. So she was actually only there. She arrived in the spring of 1934, having left four days before Christmas, 1933. Okay. Um, she arrived in the spring of 1934 and left in the spring of 1935. She arrived home on, um, I think it was May the 4th in 1934, uh, five, sorry. So, um, literally only there a year yeah but was all over the press and because she eventually was given her black belt just before she returned home which was not a Kodokan black belt so not given by Kano but it was a Butokukai black yep. belt um, so people can read up about the difference between those that's yeah. that, that's quite an, an important yeah. distinction <laughs> um, and uh, when she got her black belt, it just went all, all across the world and um, lots of photos of her doing judo, 
Um, there was a really striking photo that you used during the, the paper you gave, I think, of her in her judo outfit. I mean, she was, objectively, she was an extraordinary, beautiful, glamorous woman, wasn't yeah, she? And, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And at, and at that point, she was extremely fit. Um, she'd been training several hours every day for seven days a week yeah. for the last year. Um, uh, so, she, so she was, you know, at her physical peak, yeah. I think, in her late 30s. Um, so as you say, yeah, very imposing figure. And so when she returns to the UK, she returns as a celebrity. You would think. <laughs> yeah. You would think. Or was it very short-lived? Yeah, very short-lived. And I think that has to do with the fact that when she returned, um, uh, her husband had met somebody else while she was away. Oh, okay. Um, so she sort of came back to chaos in her in her personal life, and also when she returned to the Budokai, I think they were were not as interested as she thought that they might be. I, I, I'm putting thoughts into her head now, yeah. but um, uh, and well, she did become briefly the honorary secretary of the ladies section um, and she provided some of her husband's money to help refurbish the, <laughs> the premises the, yeah. of, of, of the Budokai um, before the divorce was through. Oh, so she got divorced then. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so I think actually the first record that you find, that I found, I should say, after her return was her um, going for a divorce. So that's before any signing into the Budokai, any other records that I can find is, is, is her yeah. petitioning for, for divorce. So I think she then needed to move out of her home. She, uh, you know, the, her personal life kind of went into a turmoil. Yeah. Um, so I think where she perhaps thought she would be coming back to a fanfare, that doesn't seem to have happened. So what happens to her after that? She's still a very young woman, isn't she? she yeah, yeah, she's she's um, she's not yet forty, so she returns to the stage um, for some income, basically. Yeah. Although although the alimony money was was good at the time, um, she needs something to do, I guess. Uh, and she's gone from being this kind of woman who everywhere in Japan everybody was interested in and was nice to her and bought her flowers and you know and then she comes back and nobody's interested and the the British um, newspaper reports of her black belt were very brief mm. um, and I think that may be to do with fascism um, because we're, we're now we're now in the mid 30s yeah um, and there are it's on a um, a newspaper report right next to this tiny piece on the fact that Sarah's been given a black belt in Japan. It's talking about fascism and other world powers with fascism, fascism in control and, and how we don't yeah. like that, you know. And, and, and Japan was, was very much building up to a military fascist yeah. regime at that time. And prosecuting a war in China and they, threatening were, European yeah, interests. Yeah, in so we, we, we've kind of. Um, you know, the Second Sino-Japanese War is, is, is looming, if not there already, you know, and um, that's a... Japan becomes less um, acceptable yeah. as a cultural kind of yeah. place, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I wonder if that's 
part of the key to why nobody was interested in Britain because it was the whole thing was connected with Japan. And uh, I believe you've just uh, had a publication about Sarah in the uh, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Yes, I have. Yeah. Very exciting. So if people want to find out more about or the full story about Sarah, they can they can access that now. Can yeah, they? absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you can, um, and you can access the uh, the dictionary through your public library. Yeah. Yeah. For free, um, if, yeah. So that's it's. Uh, I'm so excited to yeah. to have that. I'm sure a lot of people will have used it before. But if um, if uh, if the listeners haven't used the the DNB before, it's it's a really good place to get lost, isn't it? Because you start with one person and then you start yeah, resource, moving yeah. on and moving yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but how did you first come to be interested in Sarah's life? Um, so I was asked to um, collaborate on um, an academic poster presentation about Sarah for, for a judo conference because um, my um, skills were research mm. and um, so I, I put in six months of research into Sarah's life as background for this, right. this paper um, and then the paper was given uh, in theory, I moved on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Went to other jobs, um, and then I just—I kind of had a spare week, and I thought, oh, she's so interesting. I'm yeah. going to sort of continue to look, and uh, that was ten years ago. Wow. And yeah. yeah. And literally today, we're here at the British Library, and I popped up to the African and Asian room and found a little bit more about <laughs> Sarah. So, uh, yeah, I can't stop. Yeah. <laughs> and how did you find uh, the process of a PhD um, go going into that process later in life, as I did as well? I think yeah. we're probably about the same age. Yeah. Um, how, how did you manage to balance work and uh, life and doing a PhD in that way? Yeah. Was it's, it, was it, it, it easy at the beginning or was it a bit of a shock? Or? Um, I think uh, it's been a, a massive learning curve. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as I say, research is, is, is what I was doing for a living. So yeah. um, that side of it, I, I didn't have a problem with, and I'd done, and I, but at that point, I'd done six years of research already on this one subject. Right. Um, but yeah, the process of the PhD was a big learning curve yeah. to me. Um, but I, I have to say, I've loved every minute of it. It's, it's been fascinating. And to and to be forced to forced to um, encourage encourage thank you <laughs> <laughs> sort of put that life into a proper historical context yeah to write in an academic way yeah absolutely and that's why I went into the PhD process because I had been writing just a commercial biography yeah and but I kept being frustrated I, I kept finding these really interesting contexts and thinking oh but that's 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 where the interest is. It's, yeah. Sarah's life's lovely, and, and obviously fascinates me. But that the actual interest is in is in the context in which she was performing. You know, um, so that frustration um, led me led me to the PhD process, and and it, it's just been brilliant. I've loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and as part of that process, you've kind of followed in Sarah's footsteps, haven't you? Because I think you had to do research in Japan and, yes. and go yes. there and yeah, learn, yeah. learn the language to uh, an extent. Very, to a very, very small extent, yeah. yes, I'm terrible at it. Yeah. Um, How did you find that experience, that kind of... So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I've, I've, I've travelled a lot lately 
um, for this for this process. And and you know, I, there, there are very few archives I've been to that uh, that I haven't been to in 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 England certainly. Um, but yeah, going to Japan was was a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. Uh, I understand the process here. Yeah. Um, but going over there, but I was I was supported so well. And I actually, I travelled with my brother. Mm. Uh, I, I've been for two research trips, and um, he's a uh, judo academic. Okay. And um, he's uh, he lived in Japan for a while as a judoka, so he has uh, fantastic connections. Um, and the the main archive for judo, which is at the Kodokan uh, Museum and Archive. Um, he introduced me to the curator there who gave me every support, his, uh, Naoki Murata, um, and he's one of the foremost judo historians in the world. And he gave me full support and the archivists there were, were fantastic. And I couldn't have done it without you know, any of those people. It was, I, because I, I, I would have walked in and said, I need to look at 1934. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, so it's so important if, if you can develop relationships like that with, with people when absolutely. you're researching in a foreign country or foreign culture. Yes, yes, and I would recommend um, doing the work before you travel mm. and making sure you've got those connections and that, and that people will be there to kind of help you out. Because even if you speak the language, understanding the system. Is a, is is a different matter altogether, you know. So yeah. that, that that would be a big recommendation. And uh, what's next for you now that you've got the, the doctorate in the bag? I in believe, the bag, with, yes. With a few well, corrections. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's that's one of my first jobs. Is right. To <laughs> get those done. Doing the snagging, as builders would put yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm uh, well, giving a paper at the BSSH oh, right, conference. Yeah, yeah the conference. Uh, next month. Next month. It's, it's actually really soon, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's like, yeah, just a couple of weeks away. <laughs> yeah, now. I've been working yeah. on my paper the last the right. last week or so. <laughs> so, um, so giving a paper there, and then I'm giving a paper at the end of September um, at the first, the inaugural Commonwealth Judo Academic Conference. Oh wow! Where's yeah. that taking place? So that's taking place at Wolverhampton, yeah. um, which is where the Commonwealth Judo Championships are going to be, so it's being held to coincide with that event. Yeah. Um, so I'm very excited to so be speaking there. Yeah. So people can come along if there's yeah. uh, judo people interested in judo or. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then next year, uh, there's a um, an exhibition at the Museum of East Asian Art in Bath. Right which is in collaboration with the University of Bath um, and it's being held to coincide with the Tokyo Olympics. Oh yeah, because of course the Tokyo Olympics are in 2020. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a big year because they're, they're hosting the rugby as well. Rugby yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, it's going to be an amazing year yeah. to be in, in Japan. It's a, good, it's a good time to be a Japanese uh, yeah. re researcher historian, isn't definitely, it? Definitely, yeah. definitely. And, and how are you involved in that exhibition? Are you so, um, um, advising? Because of my, yeah, because of my um, interest in women in judo, the history of women in judo, the uh, museum want to make women in judo a focus 
of the exhibition, which is great. Yeah. Um, and and they've called on me, which is lovely to to be a, a special advisor. So yeah, I like I like that term. That's <laughs> exciting. I'll put the uh, the web address for the museum on the homepage for this podcast or yeah. for the, the blurb for the podcast episode. Um, and as a helicopter passes over, it's been one of the most traumatic uh, interviews I've ever done, I think, this one. Sorry about that. <laughs> Usually it takes me about 10 minutes to edit these things. <laughs> it's it's entirely not Amanda's fault, I want to point out to the listeners, but various things have happened, which I hope that you won't even know happened by the time I've finished with this. Um, but thanks for uh, taking some time to talk to me today. And congratulations once more on passing your viva. Thank you. Um, and if you, the listeners, think you've done some research on sport or leisure history that would be suitable for the seminar series at the IHR, we're looking for speakers for the 2019-2020 academic year. In fact, we're looking for people to speak quite soon because um, I haven't really pulled my finger out. But um, yeah, if you do think you've got something that you, you could present, um, do get in touch with us via the BSSH website, which is sportinhistory.org or tweet us at the BSSH's account if you look up British Society of Sport History on there, it'll be very easy to find. And that's all for this episode. So until next time, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Bye.